Hello and welcome to the Legacy Church Sermons Podcast. At Legacy Church, we help people find their identity in Jesus and their place in His mission to impact the world through the gospel. We ask that you grab your Bibles, listen up, and we hope that you hear a great word from the Lord today. One more. Good morning. Good. Hey, I've got great news this morning. You're going to love hearing this. You ready? Jesus Christ is coming back again. Isn't that amazing? It's great news, and, and it's, it's true. He came once to deal with the problem of sin, and it is declared that he will come again, and he will take all of the politicians and all of the world leaders and shove them aside and say, watch me work, and watch how this is really supposed to be done. It's the greatest news ever. It's one of the great promises that Jesus made his followers in John 14. Maybe you remember this. He looked at his followers. He said, if I go away, I'll prepare a place for you. I will come again and I'll receive you to myself that where I am, you will be also. And this has been the great hope of the church is and has been for 2,000 years. And, and yet it's fascinating and, and kind of sad and, and surprisingly depressing that we really don't think about this a lot in our daily life. I get the sense that a lot of us don't wake up every morning going, it could be today, Jesus is he's coming again. But this is the thing that we've been hanging on. And I wonder sometimes if this is one of those back-of-the-closet truths we talked about a few weeks ago. Do you remember that? Where there are moments and times in our life where we begin to intellectually assent with something and we say, yeah, I agree with that, I believe that's true. And then we take that thing to the closet and we put it on the top shelf in the back corner and it just sits there and there it remains and rarely do we ever bring it out and look at it and, and get a sense of how does this thing impact my life on a daily basis and all of the things that I do. And yet, would you believe it if I told you that the second coming of Jesus is the most discussed topic in the entire Bible? Outside of just faith in general, there's nothing talked about more in the Bible than the return of Jesus Christ. It is. 1,845 verses in the Bible talk about or allude to his second coming. That's one out of every 30 verses in your Bible talks about Jesus' return that is imminent, that is coming one day. Did you know that 129 times the Bible speaks of Jesus' first coming? And we have a whole holiday about that. And you have 49 days, shopping days until Christmas. <laughs> first note to write down in your notebook. 49 shopping days till Christmas. But 129 times we talk about his first coming. 329 times it talks about his second coming. And we rarely even mention it. And for every one verse that talks about Jesus' atonement for sins, there are two that talks about him returning again and coming for us. It's amazing when you contemplate how much the Bible talks about the return of Jesus, how little that we deal with it. In 2 Peter... Picking up in our study where we left off, Peter is writing 
about a group of people who haven't only ignored all of these things, but they're denying all of these things. And they're even arguing against the return of Jesus, that it won't happen or it's not coming or they don't care or who cares if it's happening. And I'm talking about the false teachers we learned about last week and the week before in chapter 2. They're denying that Jesus will ever come back again. And they, they kind of have gotten everything wrong in some ways. They got the past wrong. They've gotten the present day that they're living in wrong. And they've got the future wrong. And that's because they got Jesus wrong. And that's a really big deal. If you get Jesus wrong, then everything else cannot be right. And so we get to chapter 3. If you want to grab your Bible or your journaling Bible... We'll pick up this week and next week will be the end of our Second Peter study. As we get into chapter 3, he's talking about those who argue or don't believe that Jesus will return, that he's coming back, or they just don't care and live as if it's not a big deal. And I want you to see the direction that Peter points his readers in. These Christians dispersed all throughout the Roman Empire. I want you to see at the direction that he gives them to guide their eyes, their minds, and their perspective as they think about the return of Jesus. And I think it's really valid for us to look at these directions and find encouragement in them because if they were waiting then, it's true also that we're waiting now. And what Peter says then is just as relevant today. He says three directions we should be looking. We should look back, we should look around, and we should look ahead. And that's what we'll see this morning. We should look back, around, and we should look ahead. So look at verse 1. First thing Peter says, when thinking about, will Jesus return? When will he return? What will it be like? The first thing we're to do is to look back at the scriptures. Look at verse 1. It says, this is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. In other words... Peter says, I want to stir you up. You have fallen asleep. You have droopy eyes, and I want to wake you up to things that you should already know and be confident in. And he's going to talk a lot about the day of the Lord. Verse 10, he uses this phrase, the day of the Lord. And it's a phrase that's used all throughout the Bible to describe the return of Jesus. In the Old Testament, you can find it in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Joel, Amos, Zechariah, Zephaniah. You find it in the New Testament in Acts, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, here in 2nd Peter, and, and throughout the book of Revelation, the day of the Lord. And so I want you to understand the gravity of the thing that Peter is, is focused on and that we're going to talk about, the day of the Lord. So we'll define it. What is the day of the Lord? I'll give you the short answer and then I'll give you the long answer. What is the day of the Lord? The short answer is it's a really bad day that becomes a really good day. And that's pretty much a reduction of the day of the Lord. The, the fuller answer, the long answer, it, it is the day that God miraculously, divinely intervenes in human history in a future date, in a future date, which brings about the greatest stress the world has ever known, and it culminates in God's plan and his purpose and his will for the world and for his people to be fully fulfilled, and all who are alive in Christ and all who have died who are found to be in Christ will experience all of the promises of God completely in their life. Life is given, and there is no more sickness, no more pain, no more struggle, no more temptation, no more anxiety, no more depression. There are new bodies with no trouble, new earth with no trouble, and every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's unequivocal. He's the one. It's coming. That's the day of the Lord that, that Peter has in focus and that we're going to talk about and try to understand a little bit here today. And, and this is what the false teachers were denying. 
And because they were denying it, this is what some Christians were beginning to doubt, or they were becoming drowsy. And so Peter's saying, wake up. Look at verse 2. You should look back and remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior. And it was spoken by, by your apostles. In other words, he says... I'm not in my office making this stuff up as I'm writing. Like, how would I sound smart to these Christians? How, how would I get their attention? He's saying, people have been talking about this forever. The prophets of God said that Jesus would return. Jesus came and he said the things that they predicted were true. He confirmed and affirmed all of the prophecies. And we, the apostles, we're just repeating the things that we heard Jesus say to you. I want to stir your minds up to that. I want to stir up your mind. I wonder, do you, do you stir your mind in the morning? When you get up in the morning, maybe you're like me, I get out of bed and then I just kind of like go down on my knees because I'm like, and it's not a prayer posture, it's just my back hurts. And I'm like, <laughs> and, and I get up, right? And then what happens is I, I throw my podcast on or I, I, I jump into my routine, I look at my schedule, I look at my calendar, I look at the weather every day because it will be 32 and then 72 in the same day <laughs> because Texas, but I, I, I fill my mind with all of these things. I wonder though if you stir your mind in the morning. If you stir it on, on the things that we should know and that should be guiding our, our direction and the way we view all of the situations that we're facing in our day. Not just what we're going to face today, but what guides the way we face the things that we're going to face today. You know, if, if one out of every 30 verses in the Bible is about the second coming of Jesus, if you're reading your Bible at all in the morning, you should be coming across it all the time. It would be really hard to miss the day of the Lord spoken about, you'd have to work hard to not come across the day of the Lord as you read your Bible and begin to contemplate what does this mean? What implications does this have on the day that I'm about to live? So, so what Peter does is he says, uh, there's this group of people and they've gotten it wrong. They've got so much wrong and, and you should every day be stirring your minds. He says, be mindful or, or remember in verse two. It's as if Peter just says, I need you to turn the brain on. I need you to engage your, your mind, your eyes, the window of your mind, which moves down into to your heart and what motivates you. I need you to actively engage your mind and the things that you ought to know if you are in Christ and allow these things to propel you or guide you through everything that you're going to face today. How does he say that? He says, look back at the scriptures at the things that God has promised through his people from the very beginning the prophets were telling you Jesus would come and deal with sin and he would come again and make everything right. Fix your mind on these things. Jesus affirmed, confirmed, and promised them and we're continuing to teach these things. And then he says, after looking back, you should look around. Look around at the, the scoffers. Look at verse 3. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, saying, where's the promise of his coming? I don't see it. And ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Day after day is just the same. Seasons come and seasons go, but things never really change. Or in other words, he says, the, the prophets who spoke of the worldwide reign of Jesus, they also predicted that there would be mockers. In fact, some of them were just recording the news that in their day there were mockers saying that they were fools and the things that they were building their life on was a bunch of, of foolishness. You, you want to look some up, you can mark this down like Isaiah 5 
Jeremiah 17, Ezekiel 12, Malachi 2. It's just in their day, these prophets are saying, we're telling the truth. God is speaking it. He's promising it. But there are people all around us who are just laughing, saying we're a bunch of idiots. What are mockers and scoffers, really? Here's a definition for you. Scoffers are people who take lightly what should be taken seriously. I want you to hear that definition, and I want you to hang on to that. A mocker or a scoffer, in the way that Peter's talking about it, is a person who takes lightly what should be taken seriously. Do you know any scoffers? Probably surrounded by them, right? And you and I probably were them, and, and to some degree we are them, aren't we? We all take some things lightly that should be taken seriously. We have all kinds of things that probably we, we treat with a lighter sense than we should actually treat them. If, if we were, we might be doing some things differently. How do we, why do we do this? Not how, but why do we do this? Verse 3 tells us, because mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts. Do you see that? Or in other words, because we are living for temporary pleasures, because we are so fascinated and fixated on, on, on treating ourselves with temporary pleasures, that anything that speaks of accountability, anything that speaks of a stop to the pleasures we're chasing, anything that says we, we have to go a different direction, we will just write it out of the script. Like, don't interrupt my fun. I've got something I'm working on here. That's what motivates us to treat lightly some things that we might ought to be treating more seriously. How do they do it here? It's in the text in verse 4. They say, where's the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all has just continued on as it's always continued on. Nothing really changes. So where is he? I don't see anything. Everything's just the same as it's always been. And on one hand, on a lot of days, I could feel compassion for the mockers here, because all they're really asking for is show me the proof, right? I just, I want to see it. Anybody remember Doubting Thomas? Doubting Thomas, he wanted to see the nail-scarred hands of Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. Show me the proof. Differences with Thomas, he just wanted confirmation of the thing that he most hoped for in the world. But with the mockers, they're looking at all of the past, all of the present, and all of the future and interpreting it through the lens of this tiny space and time in which they live. And only that which they have observed and they are ignoring the fact that all of us in the moment that we live in are so short-sighted. We have such a, a limited view and understanding of what's going on in the world. We can barely understand our own motivations. How on earth are we going to understand all of the things going on? in the world, in the history of mankind, and our future. In the case of the scoffers, they're saying, Jesus won't come back. If you look at verse 4, this is my interpretation or my translation of what they said. Jesus won't come back because he hasn't come back. It's like saying, I won't ever die because I have not ever died before. You see that. Where's the promise of his coming? Nothing ever changes. I haven't seen him come yet. And Peter responds, and he says, anybody remember creation? Anybody, anybody remember the flood, the great flood? I want to give you two evidences that God, when he intends and wills to do something, will interrupt space and time and nothing will stop him from doing the thing that he says he's going to do. Look at, at, at verse 5. When they maintain this, when they say, Jesus isn't coming back because he's never come back. When they maintain this, it escapes their notice. 
that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago when the earth was formed out of water and by water. It's the creation account in Genesis. It's day two of the creation account when God, simply because he willed it and intended it, there was, it says in verse 1 of Genesis, that there was, it was, the earth was void, it was empty, there was nothing. How long had it been like that? Well, there wasn't time. It was in timelessness. So there was nothing, and into nothing, a complete interruption of what had been just in existence, which was nothing, God spoke. And because he intended and willed, the waters parted and earth was created. Why? Because God said so. He's God. In verse 6, he says, water was involved in creation, but also in destruction. Remember this event? Through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. And the, the phrase flooded with water means the world in its natural course, where everything was just happening, season in and season out. People were going about their daily lives. Nothing was ever really any different. People got older, people died, new people were born, and they farmed, they did whatever they did. Life just went on. But in the natural course of events, the world was overwhelmed by the judgment of God. In a snap, the world was overwhelmed by the word of God. Noah and his family was over the normal course of their day. They were overwhelmed by the kindness and the salvation of God. So Peter's argument to all of those who would say, well, where's the promise of his coming? Like nothing ever changes. It will always just be this way. Peter says, well, just because you haven't seen it happen yet doesn't mean it's not going to happen. God has suddenly interrupted the flow of the world in ways in the past, in ways that no one would have expected, in ways that mockers would have laughed at if they were told, and he promises that he will do it again with the return of Jesus. You should look back at the scriptures and you should see the flow of history. You should look back at the scriptures and see what God has done. You should look back at the scriptures and see what he has promised he will do, and you should look around at the scoffers who are saying, well, we simply... We simply don't believe it because we haven't seen it yet and realize that's not the best logic for believing something isn't going to happen. Remember the, the flood. There were plenty of mockers and scoffers in Noah's day when he began building a boat who were like, this man is a fool, right? And they made fun of him and they mocked him. And then one day it started raining and they said, well, what's that, right? And it's getting a little wet. This is different now. And then the water began to rise, and surely they're going, well, you know, if it rises, it will recede. It will be different. It just, life goes on. And then one day, the same mockers who mocked Noah were, were drowned in the flood, right? So Peter says the first thing that, that uh, false teachers will forget is that God is God. That's the first thing that, that, that mockers will forget. They'll forget that God is real, that he is God, that everything was made by him speaking, by his power, by his intent. They'll forget Colossians 3, that the whole world, all of its order, everything that allows us to breathe and live a day is held together by the power of Jesus' hand. And they'll forget that everything hangs on his word. And so the, the status quo or life as you know it is no more bound to a typical pattern as God is bound to our understanding of him. When God speaks, things happen, and they happen just like he says they will happen. And once you see this in, in, in verse 5, three little words, three words in a line that tell you the, I mean, the deep-seated big problem of every scoffing heart, of every scoffing person, even of us in seasons and in struggles. 
Verse 5. When they maintain this, somebody say those three words. Escapes their notice. It says it escapes their notice. In the original language, it's one word, and it means what they don't know that they don't know is going to get them. That's what that means. It escapes their notice. What they don't know that they don't know, it's going to get them. Here's some other translations. NIV, New International Version, says they deliberately forget. The ESV says they deliberately overlook the facts. The King James Version says, I like this, says they are willingly ignorant of these things. They're willingly ignorant. Have you learned the lesson that what you don't know that you don't know is going to get you? Have you learned that about life? What you don't know that you don't know is going to get you. It's a reduction uh, of Alfred Whitehead, an English philosopher, his, his idea, not ignorance, but ignorance of ignorance is the death of knowledge. Like that? Not ignorance, but ignorance of ignorance is the death of knowledge. In other words, ignoring that you don't know everything. <laughs> ignoring that you don't have the full picture of all things. Not understanding that as smart as you are and as educated as you are and reasonable as you are, that you have a very, very limited view on the world and what's going on in the world and, and even the deeper things, the spiritual things that are going on. Being ignorant and choosing to live ignorant of those things is going to bite you in the end. For this, they willingly are ignorant of what God has been up to in days past, and so they cannot possibly interpret days present, and so they are in danger in days future. That's what Peter's alluding to. And he talks about days future and what danger is there for those who scoff, who treat lightly what should be treated seriously. Look at verse 7. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. The phrase ungodly men doesn't have to do with morals. If a person has kept all their morals, if they have done all of the right things, the, the word for ungodly here means that people who are completely without awe of God. That's what this word means. So, in other words, they're kept for the day of judgment and destruction of people who are completely disregarding that God is God and he is real and that what he speaks takes place. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord, there's our phrase, the very good day, the very bad day that becomes a very good day, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Peter's saying the scoffers, the mockers, ignorance of their ignorance of these things will be their destruction. Not just their ignorance of these things, but their ignorance of their ignorance of these things will be their, their destruction. And Peter, you notice how he connected it to, to the flood, how he connected the day of the Lord to the time of the flood. It was a great picture. It's a great reminder but Peter wasn't just that clever. He was remembering what Jesus said to him. And you may remember this in Matthew 24. Jesus said, the coming of the Son of Man, my return, in other words, will be just like the days of Noah. There will be people who are laughing and saying, what are you building? You moron, a boat? You fool. And it will be just like it was in the days of Noah. Those mockers who have complete disregard for the reality of God for the life that he offers, but also for the judgment that he promises. 
will be like the mockers of, of Noah. He says to look back and let your mind be stirred. The prophets spoke of what Jesus confirmed and promised and what the apostles continued to teach. Look around at the scoffers or those who treat lightly what should be treated seriously. Maybe even turn that on yourself and begin to ask, what have I treated lightly or what am I treating lightly that I should treat more seriously? But ultimately, Peter says we should look ahead. We should look ahead to the Savior. Verse 8. Do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient. He's patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. I got to tell you, these two verses are equally mysterious and awe-inspiring and at the same time, so incredibly helpful in, in, in helping to transform my view and my perspective of life as it's coming at me and what lies ahead. And helpful in transforming uh, how I think about my days and what I should be spending my days on as I get up each day. Peter is answering the criticism that Jesus hasn't returned. He's delayed so long. He's not coming back. That was just something someone said one time and it was not true. Can't you see it hasn't happened? And the way he argues is he says, from God's experience, it really hasn't been all that long. You see that in verse 8 with the Lord. A day is like a thousand years. A thousand years is like a day. Because God is immortal. Because he does not age. He lives outside the constraints of our time. He doesn't forget. He's never bored. He looks at all of history at a glance. His experience with time is not the same as ours is. And you go, well, that's just a you know, little abstract for me. It's a little crazy thinking. But let me give you this picture of it. Consider this. Consider how little kids, asking them to wait five minutes for something they want, <laughs> is like forever. And it's, it, 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 think about your own childhood. You go like, if I have to wait a day, a week, my birthday isn't for another month. Christmas isn't. It just passed. And I've got to wait another year for Christmas. It's Ever, but as you get older, what happens? Your view and your experience of time begins to change as you mature and you begin to realize how quickly the days and the years go by. Talk to somebody who's 70 or 80 or 90 about their life and to a person, you find them say, it just seems like it passed so quickly. I didn't realize it at the time, no, but as I look back, life just happened so fast. And I think it's because we were created in the image of God, because we have the image of God imprinted upon our very DNA that we, as we mature, begin to understand just like the smallest fraction of how God experiences time. So when we get this argument, you know, that, that he hasn't come back, so he, he won't come back. Well, I think the picture is that it really hasn't been so long. We just haven't had the full experience or haven't seen the whole of it because we're really, really young. And if we were able to, to look at all of history at a glance, I mean, for God, my goodness, for God, he created the world a month ago. I, I, I don't know. He, Jesus came a week ago. He was crucified five days ago. He resurrected four and a half days ago, and he's coming back tomorrow. I mean, what is time when you're God? Here's a, a quote from Warren Wearsby. He says, in God's sight, this is beautiful. The whole universe is only a few days old. 
God's never, I love this line, y'all. God's never in a hurry, but he's never late. And he explains this. He could have created the, the entire universe in an instant, yet he preferred to do it over a period of six days. He could have delivered Israel from Egypt in a moment, yet he preferred to invest 80 years in training Moses. For that matter, he could have sent the Savior much sooner, but he waited, Galatians 4, he waited till the fullness of time was come. While God works in time, he's not limited by time. Does that make sense? That's what verse 8 is saying. That's what Peter's alluding to in there. Verse 9 says that there's a purpose in the waiting. Verse 9 says that the waiting is on purpose. It reminds me of John 11. Remember the story of Lazarus in John 11? Remember they came to Jesus and they said, your buddy, one of your closest friends, Lazarus, is on his deathbed. And Jesus didn't jump and run immediately to Lazarus' side to be with him. It says that Jesus delayed, that Jesus that he waited two days. Do you remember this story? He waited two days, and then he said, okay, now it's time. it's time to go to Lazarus. And while he waited, Lazarus went from deathbed to death, and people didn't understand why he waited. In fact, one of, of the sisters of Lazarus ran to Jesus. She was upset. She began to, to let him have it, and she said, what were you waiting on? You knew. Why didn't you come sooner? If you had come, you could have done something. And John 11 says there was a purpose in his waiting, wasn't there? It says his wait was, it was motivated by his love. He waited so that when he arrived, he could perform the miracle of bringing Lazarus, who was dead, back to life. He waited so he could show those who had turned to him that he had the power over life and death. He waited to increase their faith. He waited to give them an experience with himself that they could fall back on because a day was coming in which he would be crucified and they might lose all hope. They might turn to despair in that moment. But no, if they knew that he truly could bring dead things back to life, that he was the master over life and death, maybe in that day they would be encouraged and say, Jesus said he would die and he would resurrect. We've already seen him bring dead people to life. Surely, he will do just as he has promised. He waited on purpose. And there's a purpose in his waiting in return. Verse 9, the Lord is not slow about his promise. Some count slowness. No, he's patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Why is he patient? It's motivated by his love. Why is he patient? Because he desires people not to perish, but to come to him, to turn to him in repentance. That's that line, all to come in repentance. And because patience is central to his identity. He can't help but be patient. It's who he is. It's like God is love and God is just. God is truth. God is these things inerrantly within him. He is patient. Remember when he introduced himself to Moses on Mount Sinai, when Moses went to receive the, the Ten Commandments, how God introduced himself in this moment? It's like, hey, Moses, I just want to reintroduce myself to you. He said, I am compassionate and gracious. I'm slow to anger, and I'm abounding in loving kindness and truth. That's who I am. I just want to reintroduce myself to you. That's who I am, and out of who I am, this is what I do. I'm waiting for all of the sheep to come into the fold so that none would be lost. In the face of scoffers and mockers who treat lightly what should be treated seriously, I want you to listen to Romans 2 verse 4. Listen to this. Or do you think lightly, here's our language, right? We treat lightly what should be treated seriously. 
Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, which you should probably treat much more seriously than you do, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? The delay is due to his kindness, and his kindness leads to repentance when you see it, when you take it seriously. Then it leads you to turn to him, but there will always be those who scoff, who mock, and turn to unbelief. And about them, look at verse 5. Because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. God delays the judgment, which in 2 Peter 3 verse 7, he said it's a fiery judgment that scorches the earth. But verse 5 of, of Romans 2 says it's a righteous judgment. It's not unfair. It's right, the judgment that God gives that God delays it because he wants all whom he has called to come. I'm going to ask you this. How many of you have turned to the Lord in the last 10 years? I see a couple here. How many of you have turned to the Lord in the last 15 years? You've come to become a Christian. There's another. I wonder for those of you who raised your hand, what, it's 2022, what if Jesus had returned in, in 2003? And you had not yet come to him. Get the bigger group here. What if Jesus had come back in, in 1991? I wonder how many of you would not yet had come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. You wouldn't have recognized him as being God. You wouldn't have recognized that he gives life and nothing else does. I wonder how many of you weren't born in 1991. This is something to praise God for and to worship God for, that he's patient. His patience endures. In his loving kindness, he holds back, he waits, he holds back the fiery but righteous judgment so that all whom he would call would come to him. And understand, God is not reckless, he is not unknowing, he is not careless about who all will come to him. He knows, he knows and he waits He's never in a hurry, but he will not be late. Verse 9 is a verse that I'd encourage you to root yourself in, to memorize. If you memorize Scripture, add it to your list. If you don't memorize Scripture, maybe you start with verse 9 of, of 2 Peter 3. A verse to memorize and root yourself in, to pray verse 9. Pray the Scriptures. Pray verse 9, aligning your mind aligning your heart, aligning the directions of your days with the will, the intentions, and the faithfulness of God. We don't know all who will come to him. We don't know that. God does. He knows. Our task is to share the good news of his kindness. Our task is to share the good news of his patience. Our, new, our, our task is to share there is life to be found in Jesus Christ and to pray that those we know would come to repentance they would come, they would turn to him and place faith in him. The end of the phrase in verse 9, I'll read it again. He says he's not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. It's a word that literally means to make room for. It means to make space for repentance. Or I have all of these things going on in my life. I'm so busy. I have all of these ideas, all of these ambitions, all of these actions, these responsibilities, these activities. I just got a lot going on right now. He's patient. 
for people who would make room to see truth and to take seriously what should be taken seriously, to make room to turn to Him. And that's something that we can and should be praying for as a church. That's something that I think is probably the best way that we could end our time this morning in this way, rather than just leaping ahead. Here's five things to know this week, and now we're going to sing a song of dedication, give a high five, and go. Oh, my goodness, Stephen, I swear. <laughs> I think the best way we could end our time is to, to spend a few moments praying for people in our life to make room for repentance. To make room, it requires us to humble ourselves for a moment, to recognize there's a, a lot that I don't know that I don't know. To make room for repentance, to meekly receive the word of God. And so let me do this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask you to bow your head and I'm gonna lead you in a time of prayer. I'll start a prayer and then I just will hand it over to you. And I'll let you, right where you sit, right where you remain, to get specific and to continue this prayer. So if you would just bow your heads and, and close your eyes. Our Father, who is able to look at all of history and future at a glance, we thank you that you sent your Son in the fullness of time. Jesus, that you didn't rush, but you waited until the time was right that you're never hurried, you're never panicking, you're never out of control and simply responding, but you're purposeful and steady and faithful. We thank you that you came to deal with the problem of sin. And while the enemy tries to steal life, you come to give life and life abundant. We pray with anticipation of your return. Would you make our hearts and our minds and our lives ready for that? God, would you please bring people to repentance? Would you even use us to turn them towards your kindness? Would you bring these friends of mine, these people in my city, these family members of mine to repentance, that they would treat seriously what should be treated seriously? And thank you, God, that you've given them another day God, would you give me strength today to go hard, showing your love, speaking your love for those we know and those we don't who are resistant to you, Jesus, yet you've called and, and you've desired their repentance. Please show yourself and draw them in. The church where you are, get specific with that prayer. There are people in your life who should take seriously the things of God. Because in Christ there's life. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And there's no road to the Father except through Him. This is your time to pray.